0: cool thanks for your love and support in advance simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website and it'll take you where you need to go now on to the show Many of us grew up without learning how to manage our finances to pursue our dreams and plans for our future. We grew up with the wrong ideas about money, thinking it's all about numbers when it has to do a lot with our emotions. How are we supposed to feel comfortable talking about money? Is there a safe space for that? There is. Head over to our feed and listen to the featured episode we recorded with Self. Don't forget to follow Self Podcast. The Prolific Writer Podcast, episode number 113. Harvey Stanbro stops by the show, and Harvey's been writing for 40 years. He's written 50 novels, 200 short stories, and 30 short story collections. Let's just say we have a lot to talk about, and you're going to enjoy this interview. But first, some intro music. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well, so you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Welcome, 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 everyone, to the Prolific Writer Podcast. It's your host, Ryan J. Pelton. So glad that you are here. And I have to apologize, it has been a minute. We did not have an episode at all in December and a lot of life things happening and vacations and holidays and all that good stuff. But we are back in action. It is January. And I wanted to just kind of open this episode. If you are new to the show and following along, this podcast is dedicated to helping you write fast often and well. And we've been doing that for quite a few years now. And, uh, and like all things, sometimes you get to a point where you begin to ask questions. You know, what what's the next step what's the next phase you know what what do you have to say what do you want to keep on saying what do you want to keep on doing and uh and so uh, a couple of months ago um i was part of a larger podcasting network and we have since uh, ended our relationship all on good terms uh, the project entertainment network and uh, it was a great run of uh, multiple years with them and uh doing the show And, uh, and so I've been, been doing the show for over three years now, and we have over a hundred and I think by the, all said and done, it's going to be like 120 plus episodes, maybe 130. And it's been such a, an honor, a blessing, uh, a privilege to be able to interview some of the most prolific writers on the planet and to share some of my experiences and some of my wisdom things I've learned along the way, writing, you know, 18 books and stories and interviewing authors and courses and all those good things. And, uh, and so it's been just a lot of fun and just kind of through, uh, December and part of January, just kind of doing some reflecting, some thinking and saying, you know, what is the next steps? What, what, what do we want for this show? What do we want it to be? And so what I've, I've come to decide is that this is not going to be the last episode, um, because I've, I have quite a few interviews in the queue, um, I think we have three or four uh, more after this one. And I wanted to honor the guests that have come on the show, But we're going to be uh, ending the prolific writer podcast. And that may sound sad. Uh, that may uh, make you mad. It may make you go finally, get this guy out of here. Uh, wherever you are, that's fine. Uh, but the the good news is if you are interested at all, as i'm I'm kind of in the pr- in the works, I should say, in the planning stages of kind of a new new podcast. And what I've been thinking about is creativity, writing, things like that is still very much a big part of my life and and things I want to continue to talk about and continue to interview uh, interesting creative people that are writing and creating things and making things. But I wanted to kind of expand the scope a little bit. Um, Because I've always believed this, that, that, you know, when you, when you want to say something or you want to express yourself or you want to, you know, share a message that you have is, is that you want it to mean something. You want it to have weight. Uh, You don't want to just keep saying the same thing over and over. And, and and so, um, you know, I've been primarily focused through this podcast on, on the writing craft and the business side and publishing and all those kinds of things. Uh, and, and so I want to kind of expand my horizons a little bit, um, and, and kind of expand the show. And so, uh, prolific writer will go away and we'll have a, a new name and 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 if you want to join me over there I'll, I'll make note of that when when the time comes but um but just kind of expand some of the just the curiosity that i have and the people i love talking to and that are making things and making a difference in the world and and what that might look like um and so the the new podcast will be a little different we're going to talk about different topics and subjects and talk a little bit about faith and spirituality uh but also talk about creativity and 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 also just like i said energy you people that are doing interesting things in the world. And they may be writers or creators, but they also might be, you know, uh, stay-at-home moms or or business people or um you know, pastors or religious leaders or business leaders or whoever. So, um so so stay tuned for that. Um but but secondly, uh despite the the podcast maybe going away, I'm still kind of thinking about what the prolific writer will be. It'll still be on iTunes and all the different outlets. And if you're new to the show, there's you know hundreds of interviews and content. So that's not going away. That'll be evergreen. And, and feel free to, to work your way through those. Um, is is just to say, is there still a space for just specifically talking about writing? And one of the ideas that I have, and, and I haven't fully decided if I'm going to pull the trigger on this yet, is um, I used to do Motivation Mondays and, uh, and have done quite a few of those. And they're just kind of short little encouraging and inspirational kind of ideas to kind of get your writing week uh, going in the right direction. And so I might still be doing that on the prolific writer. Um, I will keep that uh, in, in, in tow, if, if you will. Um, but I, I just have to see kind of what my bandwidth is and what, what I'm able to do. But there's just part of me this this wrestling that's happening of, of letting go and, and maybe not wanting to fully let go. Um, but the good news is we have an interview today. Uh, Harvey Stambro and I have I think um, if I recall I think I have three more interviews in the queue and I want to honor those guests because they're fantastic interviews Um, and you're going to gain a lot of wisdom from them as well but I I love talking to Harvey because one of my favorite I should say favorite guests to have on the show are those that um, have been writing for a long time and, and and those that uh, you know, have, have done a lot of work because there's something about just experience and doing the work. Um, it, it, you know, it's one thing to have someone who's, you know, written for a year and, you know, has 12 novels or whatever, but someone who's been kind of working at it for 40 years, you know, 50 novels, 200 short stories, just to hear kind of the ups and the downs, the, the benefits of, of traditional publishing, uh, the, the negatives of traditional publishing and indie publishing and, and, and just how to think about writing and, and how, how it works. And, and really uh, Harvey's a, a great inspiration to all of us cuz i think he he just does the work and he he's not overly crazy when it comes to word counts and things like that but just consistently getting to the desk getting to the page and and doing the work and so you're going to love this this interview i was i was blessed to have Harvey on the show and so without further ado here is Harvey Stambro. Well welcome everyone to the prolific writer podcast. This is your host Ryan J Pelton and i am so honored today to have Harvey Stanbro on the show and Harvey has been writing for 40 years over 50 novels 200 short stories 30 short story collections I could go on and on and Harvey I do have to ask you why do you keep on writing after all of these years what keeps you going uh, each and every day
1: well I've only been I've been calling myself a writer for about 40 45 years but I've only actually been writing and turning out writing for about the past five years.
0: So you've written fifty novels, two hundred short stories in only last four to five years.
1: Almost two hundred short stories, uh, uh, fifty-some novels and novellas, all in the past five years, almost six years.
0: Well, right on. I mean, I think that's, that's the epitome of what this show's about. And, uh, you are a common tale. Now I have to ask, so if you've been writing for 40 years, but you just now started publishing, what was going on before then?
1: Well, I, <laughs> you sent me a few questions and I kind of answered that one. Um, when you asked what I failed at in writing, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's really what it was. And, and I see a lot of people, uh, kind of failing that way, if you want to call it failing, um, for a long time, uh, at least two decades, maybe three, I was working on an outline for what I was absolutely certain would someday be a, an epic, expansive novel. Um, at that time, I didn't even think, you know, in, in line of series, I was just thinking of novels. And it would be, you know, a mega hit and all that stuff. And so I worked on that and worked on it and worked on it. And as I said, I even called myself a writer. Uh, But I wasn't writing except in the strictest sense uh, that you're writing when you create a grocery list or an outline or whatever. Uh, Basically, you're taking two long lines and a short line and creating the letter a and then going through the rest of the alphabet in a particular order. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's really the only way I was writing back then. Uh, later, much, much later about not, not quite six years ago. I'll tell you what, it'll be six years ago. This coming February, uh, I found Heinlein's rules huh. and, uh, Not too long after that, I was talking with uh, Dean Wesley Smith, and he was telling me about uh, a friend of his who dared him one time and said, dare to be bad, right without knowing where you're going. Let the characters tell the story. So I tried that. He calls it writing into the dark. So I tried that. And, uh, you know, I decided... I, and, and at the very beginning, I was skeptical. I thought, you know, sure, this would work for him because he's been published, you know, billions of times. And but no possible way could it work for me. But the only way to know for sure was try it, give it a good, honest try. So I did that. And honestly, I was amazed. I was amazed at the characters that the stories the characters will tell you if you just let them, you know, uh, I wouldn't interrupt my neighbor when they're trying to tell me about some jerk who cut them off in traffic on their way to Tucson. Right. Mm -hmm. So why would I exert control and try to interrupt my characters when they're telling me a story? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I look at it. It isn't my story. It's the character story. They're the ones who are living it. And I'm just kind of along for the ride recording it and very lucky to be so.
0: Well, Harvey, I think you're in a uh, very good company with me. Uh, I, I think we're both Dean Wesley Smith fans. I've actually had him on the show. And uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, what he talks about and what you talk about a lot is, you know, riding into the dark, not using an outline, trusting kind of the subconscious, trusting the creative brain, trusting, you know the the like you said the the characters are going to tell you what they need to tell you and where it's going to go and and you know it's funny because in in the writing world what you're describing is is fairly controversial because you know what's promoted what's preached a lot is you know you got to outline everything and and you know have all your characters laid out and settings and all that you know before you can write a compelling story so you know, have you gotten pushback uh, for this? Because obviously you talk about this and, you know, you promote this and say, this is how what would unlock me. How do you how do you kind of uh, deal with those that would say, no, you can't do it this way. You got to, you know, outline to death, even though you spent 20 years outlining and never writing anything. How do you respond to that?
1: If I'm, I don't argue. Um, I really don't. I have kind of a dedicated, uh, sort of a following, I guess, of writers who, tend to like what I do. And, and so they, you know, they try it too and to, to different degrees. And, but yeah, if if I meet someone in person, like at a conference or something, and you know, they tell me, Oh, I'm on my 23rd draft or whatever. I just nod and smile and, you know, good for you and go on about my business because it's, it's difficult to overcome all the stuff that basically non writers taught us, uh, you know, English teachers bless their hearts. I used to be an English teacher, uh, literature professors, uh, all these folks taught us that we're supposed to outline and we're supposed to, you know, sweat blood and all that kind of nonsense. And, and uh, you know, and people bought it lock, stock and barrel. I guess it sounds right. Uh, or something, I don't know. But it, it, we're taught from the beginning in school not to trust what we do. We're taught, actively taught, that what we write is no good, that you have to rewrite it, uh, you know, and, and and that to me that's just self-defeating. In every other profession, we use positive reinforcement to tell folks when they're doing well, And that, you know, that they have to practice. They have to constantly practice and get better. Uh, Learn a new technique, bring it on board, and then practice that technique as you're writing through your subconscious. Uh, And in every other art form and in every other profession, that's exactly what they do. But for some reason, writers have this, uh, you know, they, they can be, mega successful uh, in the flooring business or in the construction industry, or uh, a guy can be a a CEO of a major corporation, but the instant the guy retires or steps aside and decides he's going to write, all of a sudden he, he, he needs to take input from people who haven't written as much as he has, or from people who haven't written at all. And to me, that just makes no sense. So that's kind of why I decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and try writing into the dark and see what happens. And and the other side of that is, you know, writers are always saying, well, writers are the worst judges of their own work. And that's absolutely true. But the thing is, when a writer thinks his work is good, then he start, suddenly remembers, oh, Writers are the worst judges of their own work. But if he thinks his writing is bad, that voice is nowhere to be heard. He sticks it in a drawer and nobody ever sees it. And that's just kind of silly. You know, it's being awfully selective with that little internal voice that says you're the worst judge of your own work. So I try to tell people, you know, your job is to write. That's your job. Your job is to tell the stories that your characters are giving you through your subconscious mind. The reader's job is to decide whether it it's good or whether it blows or whatever, you know, <laughs> I like uh, that's that. not, that's not your job. And even well, if you, even if you think you love what you've just written, that's still only one opinion. And if you think what you've just written is horrible, let it out the door anyway. let readers see it because some of them are going to love it, and a few of them will like it, and then a few of them won't and that's okay
0: i really, I really like your your perspective on this because I think it it what it is doing is freeing writers to you know write the stories they want to write, tell the stories they want to write, write the books they want to write, and then, you know, kind of move on too, where they're they're not spending so much time worrying about, you know, if people are gonna like it or not like it, or, you know, is it good or bad, or is it gonna sell a lot or not? Um, sounds like you have a, you know, obviously you're very prolific and it's like, you know, you can't you can't fall in love with that one story. You know, you kinda have to have it move on because you want to tell more stories. Um I was reading uh something by Asimov, uh Isaac Asimov, you know, the prolific science fiction writer and you know, and he talks about that. He says one of the, the gifts of being prolific is you can kind of move on to the next thing and you don't fall in love with one thing, you know, and, and if one thing sells, great. If You know, but let's write the next one. Maybe the next one will sell sell better or not sell or, you know, but you're never dependent on that one work to kind of define your, you know, writing career and all that. And I think that's really, really hel- healthy. Um, but Harvey, let's let's talk a little bit. So you, just to back up a little bit is you, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're working on this outline not really writing. And then finally, you kind of bumped into, you know, uh, Heinlein's Rules and started writing Into the Dark and producing work. Well, talk, talk to us a little bit about that first, what was that first book you were working on? And, and how did that all go?
1: <laughs> you know, I, this kind of feeds in from what I was saying a minute ago about the, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth short story I wrote, Into the Dark. Uh, frankly, I thought it sucked. I thought it was absolutely horrible. I thought it was one of the worst pieces of writing I'd ever seen. And I don't hear often from readers, but a a nice lady who lived, the story took place in Pamplona, Spain. And the lady lives in the countryside outside of Pamplona, Spain. And she emailed, or at least that's what she said in her email. And she emailed me and, and said, uh, thank you for this story. It's one of the best short stories I've ever read and blah, blah, you know, and went on and on and on. And this is one that I almost didn't, didn't publish because I thought, ugh, this thing is just horrible. I I just, you know, I felt like nothing worked. I thought it was just horrible. And here, this reader whom I don't know, have never met, Uh, emailed me out of the blue and told me that that story was one of the best stories she'd ever read. Hmm. So that kind of cemented writing into the dark for me. Hmm. And then uh, the very first, uh, in, in April of 2014, I decided I was going to start writing a short story every week. And that went on for either 70 or 72 weeks, Hmm. 70 weeks, I think. And then when I did break the streak, I broke it on purpose, like a moron. Um, and then I started my first short story. One of the, one of the, I mean, my first novel, one of the short stories I wrote was a Western of all things. And I was, you know, I, for publicity purposes, I say, well, I was born in New Mexico, seasoned in Texas and baked in Arizona. So I'm done. Uh And, uh, (laughs) and, <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know, despite my, my upbringing back in New Mexico and working on ranches and, and so forth when I was a kid, I never dreamed, I never even thought about writing a Western, but one of my short stories came out and it was a typical old shoot 'em up Western, you know, there's a Texas Ranger involved and, and a tough guy in a bar and, and all this nonsense. So anyway, that all worked out pretty well. And toward the end of that story, I could swear the character, the main character of that short story, kind of tugged on my sleeve. And he said, wouldn't you like to know what brought me here? And I thought, well, yeah, that would be interesting. So that was probably around June of 2014, maybe July. And in October of 2014, I sat down and wrote my first novel, and it was the first. Uh, well, actually, it turned out to be the fourth book of the of the West Crowley series, which is now eleven books and growing. Um, all from that short story, and uh, and from that character being the insistent individual that he was.
0: Now, Harvey, when you uh, started that first. Uh, short story and it was, you know, ended up being a Western. Now, was that something that you consciously kind of thought of? Like, I love to write a Western or is that just kind of what came out when you started writing these characters? It just, that was the setting. That was the character. That was the, you know, kind of, you know, feel of the book. Talk us through a little bit of your process when you're kind of writing into the dark. I mean, are you thinking about genre? Are you thinking about, you know, I'd like to do this or that, or, you know, how do you come up with the title? All that kind of stuff. Talk, us, talk to us about that.
1: Actually, for me, ideas come in, in different forms, I guess, for everybody, from from what I've been able to tell. For me, usually a line of dialogue and the character who's saying it kind of pops into my head. Uh, you know, I, I was driving back from uh, Tucson one day with my wife in the truck, and we were just driving along, and I burst out laughing. And she said, what's the matter? And I said, no, you don't want to know. So we went on like that for a little while. And she said, no, really, tell me what it was. I said, well, there's kind of a bad word involved. She said, well, tell me anyway. I want to know. I said, well, this Brooklyn guy popped into my head. And, you know, and and I, I mean, he was fully formed. I could see his face. I could see the clothes he was wearing, the cigar he was holding and so on. And he looked at me as I was driving down the road and he said, what I didn't tell you must've been none of your effing business. And, and when that happened, I just cracked up. It was all in my head, but I just busted out laughing. So when I told my wife, uh, she cracked up too. And she said, does that happen to you all the time? And I said, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I wasn't thinking of anything in particular, just this character popped into my head and said this line of dialogue. He wasn't even talking to me. He was talking to somebody else whom I still haven't seen, but, uh, but I got to overhear that line of dialogue and eventually that guy will appear in, in a story or novel or something. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's how mine normally come. Mm -hmm. Uh, I won't be thinking of anything in particular and, a character will pop into my head or I'll look out my car window and see something and that will cause another thought that might contain a character and, and then a story is born. That's just kind of the way it works for me. I have done exercises where if I don't have any ideas, which is ridiculous because you know i I get ideas constantly but if i didn't have an idea i could sit down and uh just pick a character male or female put the character give the character a problem just some little problem it might be an untied shoelace or maybe he stumbles on his way out of the house or whatever uh and then drop him into a setting and then just write uh you know, what happens as a result of this little problem he has. Um, maybe a guy is leaving, um, maybe a guy, a thin guy, uh, maybe he's six foot tall and he's thin. He looks sort of like uh, dagwood, you know, or something. And maybe he's just walking out of his suburban home and across a little concrete stoop. And he glances down and notice his shoelace untied. So he sets down his briefcase and he kneels to tie his shoelace, and you know, splat! A bullet impacts the door jam just above his head when he kneels down, and then just write the rest of it. Uh, that's kind of how my stories start. There's just, just uh, basically, a character with a line of dialogue, or a character with some little middly problem in a setting, and then just write the rest of it.
0: I like that. So you, you mentioned on your website that a lot of your stories have suspense and romance elements in them. Tell us a little bit where there are some early influences, things you read, things you watch that kind of influence that those elements when it comes to like suspense and romance type stuff.
1: Uh, I'm, I've always been interested in psychology hmm. and I love getting inside the character's head, which is useful anyway, if it's the POV character, um, uh, and, and it's a good idea, too, to be in the, in the antagonist's head as well, uh, at least to some degree, to let, let the reader know why he's doing what he's doing and how strongly he believes in it. Uh, my own influences when I was reading, it, it wasn't specifically for romance or suspense, but, uh, you know, we just kind of read what we enjoy. And so mine were, um, I enjoy thrillers and action adventures and crime novels and westerns and magic realism. And so mine were, uh, 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 let's see, probably uh, Jack Higgins is a huge one for suspense, uh, thriller suspense. His books are short. So nowadays they call them suspense, but back in the day they were thrillers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Stephen King is an absolute way up there master of horror and suspense. Uh, Lee Child is pretty good. Uh, And Lee Child, I understand also writes into the dark.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does Stephen King.
1: Uh, Raymond Chandler was a big influence on me. I absolutely love the way the guy turns a phrase. Uh, Robert Heinlein, of course, Isaac Asimov, and Ray Bradbury. Um, and not only in science fiction, but in kind of writing in general. Uh, how do they do what they, you know, when, when I'm reading one of them and, and something just blows me out of my chair, uh, it's hard for me to finish the book. I almost have to go back right now. And, and read it now as a writer and say, how did he do that? You know, uh, for Magic Realism, it was the same thing. Uh, the big master there is Isabel uh, Allende, um, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez is, is no slouch, and Jorge Luis Borges is really good. For Westerns, uh, in addition to Zane Gray and some of the other older guys, Mostly Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove was mm-hmm. a huge influence on me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I thought that was a, a thing that probably at least all American boys should have to watch as required mm-hmm. required uh, viewing and maybe read as required reading. Uh, just kind of learn how to act, how to be uh, a man someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, to learn economy of words and multiple plot lines and keep action moving and all those kind of things, I also, when people ask, I also recommend television sitcoms. Some mm-hmm. of the good ones like *Mash*, uh, *Seinfeld*, *Hill Street Blues*, *NYPD Blue*. You know, the writing in those things was so excellent, and uh, and they resolved things well. Uh, within that little hour. And there were usually multiple plot lines too, Uh uh which is, and and you, you know, it's kind of like watching several goldfish. If you're trying to look at the elements of fiction in a novel or a novel series, uh, it's kind of like watching four or five goldfish in a lake. But if you see them in a, in a half hour or hour long television episode and you're paying attention it's more like looking at them in a gallon jar. You know, it's a little easier to see the interaction and, and all that. So mm-hmm. so I kind of recommend those, too.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny you said Seinfeld. If, if you go back and watch Seinfeld, those listening, it, it's amazing how every episode has at least two or three storylines that somehow come back together by the end of the, the episode. Yeah, they all, yeah they, all,
1: they all come back together. They yeah. all tell.
0: And yeah, they could all be doing totally different things and yet they all connect together. It's really, yeah, well, well written stuff. Um, so Harvey, if somebody were to pick up your book, um, obviously you have a lot of influences, you know, movies and TV and and books, all different genres. You know, what what's kind of a unique thing about your maybe let's we'll just say your novels, your kind of longer stuff, like what makes it unique? I mean, what are people gonna get when they they pick up a, a Harvey Stambro book? Um, you know, style, tone, what, what would you, how would you describe some of your work?
1: I hope they won't be able to put it down. Uh, that's how I, I write it. I, I write it, I, I tend to, tend to really uh, pull the reader into the story. Um, a lot of that is utilizing the five senses uh, as delivered through the characters, through the pob characters' physical senses and then the the POV character's emotional sense, how how the setting makes him feel, but also just his physical senses. And then that's garnished with the character's opinions. It's, uh, you know, it's, if, if the, the, the example I like to use, my favorite example is, uh, you know, say you've got a typical mystery, you've got a mansion, and in the mansion is a library, you know, a formal library. And uh, you have two different protagonists walk into that library, uh, maybe to investigate. And there's a scent of pipe smoke on the air when they walk in the library. And the lighting is, is say, relatively dim. You know, one POV character will think um, it's dark in there. Uh, you know, I can hardly see. It's dark. And the stench of that smoke, ugh, it's terrible. So that's kind of the, the, you know, the POV character is describing the setting. He's describing how the the air smells and how the light looks. But uh, he's adding his opinion to it. This The smoke stinks or the light, you know, it's almost too dark to see in here. And then if another POV character walks into the room, uh, it might be totally different. Maybe the maybe the smoke is now an aroma, and it puts her in mind of her grandfather when he smoked cherry pipe tobacco in his study. Uh, it, it, a small smile comes to her face when she smells it, and maybe the lighting to her is warm rather than being the room is dark. Uh, so So it depends on you know, the description is always there. Um, I try to use all five senses in every major scene because when when you do that, the reader not only learns a little bit about the protagonist, you know, they also get to see, hear, smell, feel, sense the description of the, of the setting. They get to actually know the description just as if they too are inside the body of the POV character
0: well, that's really good I, I think you know what you're just what you're <laughs> I should say describing uh, is yeah really helps the reader kind of you know engage with the the reader or excuse me the the uh, the writer uh, and, and I like what you're saying because I think what it also and I you know correct me if you're if I'm wrong is you also don't have to do these kind of big info dumps you know informational dumps oh on, no 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 never. right you're using dialogue, you're using, you know, smells, sights, you know, taste, whatever it is to to actually kind of engage them, to give them a, a sense of what's going on without going. And we walked in the room and there's a pipe and, da, 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 you know, uh, I think that's really good writing, uh, you know, because that, that's the always the art, right? Is Is trying to figure out how much information do I give? How do I give that information enough to kind of keep people, you know, Engaged in the story and understanding what's going on, rather than just kind of don't you know? Because some of those old, you know, I, I never liked the you know Tolkien novels. I mean, they're great, but they're just so much information and so detailed; they're you know a thousand pages long. Um, yeah,
1: and again, and again, that that's a, a you made a huge distinction there a minute ago when you were talking about uh, you know how much description you give and and all that kind of stuff. As the writers, we are the ones who are putting the the words on the page or on the screen. But uh, again, it's important that every word comes through the POV character. Mm -hmm. Every word is either through the character's mouth or it's through the character's thoughts or the character's physical senses. So, you know, I've written that scene before where, where one POV character absolutely hates the stench of smoke and the other one actually kind of enjoys it. It, it smells good. Uh, and, and it, it, because it wasn't up to me. Mm -hmm. And these, these folks who, who, uh, just say, well, um, you know, (laughs) the old joke, you know, when I looked at him, um, or I I looked at the guy and I thought, man, that guy is ugly. And, uh, or, or let's see when I look at you all time stops, instead of saying, um, you have a face that would stop a clock. Right. Mm -hmm. So the difference there is if, if, if the writer is too overbearing, you, you don't want to put anything in the work that comes from the writer. That's the that's the big difference, and that's where info dumps and all that stuff comes from, uh-huh. and that's where where uh, unemotional description comes from. It comes from the writer. It doesn't come from the characters. Uh-huh. And if if it's not filtered through the character, if if it's one thing I I heard a while back, someone was having a discussion about what's too much description or too little description you know back and forth back and forth and the the upshot of it i think is this if the description comes of the setting the description of the setting comes through the pov character's physical senses and is delivered with the pov character's opinions attached you can't have too much description huh. because the reader is then seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching the setting through the POV character. And it, but, but if it's, if, if, you know, if you say, well, we walked into the library and there was a bunch of smoke and, and the lights were turned down dim and blah, blah, blah. That's not the character doing it. That's the, the writer doing it. That's good. And, and you think about it. I mean, when you or I or anyone else, including our characters, when any human being walks into a new setting, whether you get into a car or you walk through the back door of your house or you walk into a grocery store or a hardware store, you have opinions about that when you walk in. You know, you, you'll sit down and go, oh, smells like smoke in here. Or you walk through the back door and, and you're immediately aware uh, your wife's been doing laundry because you can smell the soap. You know, things like that. So, why take that away from our characters? Mm.
0: No, that's good. And I, I think what you're also maybe hinting at too is is letting readers, you know, kind of define and describe, you know, that's why we read, right? It's to to actually use our imaginations. And if we give them everything, then it's, you know, you kind of disengage even the, you know, the the reader because they're they're going, Yeah, what you know, oh, I, I know a place like that. Or or this is kind of what comes into my mind. I think that's the beauty of of fiction too, is, you know, let the let the reader do some work too. Um, and, you know, rather than tell them exactly how everything's working and, and all that, uh, no, really good stuff. Uh, Harvey, uh, now Harvey, I, I know I hinted at, you've already kind of answered this question is kind of, you know, failures, uh, falling on your face, you know, maybe not starting writing, uh, before you did and, you know, ditching the outlines and getting, getting the work out there. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you talk a little bit about this on your, on your, on your blog and your website, is you had some experience with some tr- traditional publishing and decided, you know what, I'm just going to go all indie. Um, sounds like maybe you had a bad experience. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Kind of why you've b- been kind of a promoter and just all in on indie publishing and kind of, you know, being able to be your own kind of publisher. Um, talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, really, that, that, was, uh, that was not fiction. Uh, I used to be quite a poet. I, was, I had some poetry nominated for the National Book Award. And uh, another book that was nominated for the uh, Pulitzer Prize, although it wasn't shortlisted. Um, And my influences there, by the way, were Howard Nemerov, Anthony Hecht, and and a lot of others like that. But uh, And and that was great for me for writing later for language and rhythm and the nuances of language. So writing poetry kind of worked into uh, writing fiction. Um, but I, I had a, a poetry, a book of poetry published, a collection published called Beyond the Masks. And, uh, in fact, I think that's the one that was nominated by the publisher for the National Book Award. Um, <clears throat> he came back to me later and, and it was a small press. He came back to me later and he said he wanted, uh, I had written, I was, teaching, I was teaching GED English on one side of the hallway in a small college, uh, and on the other side of the hallway, I was teaching grunt English to college freshmen, and I was using the same handout because I didn't care for the textbook they were using, so I just wrote my own little handout. It was a 17-page handout, and later on it became a book called The Rules As They Should Read, Uh, which later became the book Punctuation for Writers. So he liked that book. So he said, well, I want to publish that for you too. I said, okay, fine. So I had the poetry collection and that book, and then another nonfiction called Writing Realistic Dialogue and Flash Fiction that's still available out there. Um, And he published all three of those this traditional publisher, Central Avenue Press was the name of it. I think they're defunct now. And, uh, and I got the rights back, but it, for me, it was strictly a monetary thing. Um, I used to do a lot of writers conferences, speak at a lot of writers conferences. Um, one year I spoke at 18 different writers conferences. And so I was always either driving or I was, uh, you know, flying. And whenever I drove, I would plan in advance to stop in, in different major towns along the way. Like when I drove from Indianapolis, Indiana to Tucson, uh, I stopped in
0: uh,
1: St. Louis, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Albuquerque. I think that's it on the way out. And then I stopped at one or two on the way back during the drive. And I would go in and meet the manager and and shake his hand. And one place I'd have a signing and, you know, I'd sign copies of my books that they had in stock and, and so on. And I noticed every time I gave a talk or every time I went to a conference, my sales would spike. Of course, they were nonfiction books for writers. So my sales would spike. But I was making at the time a really big royalty of 10%. You know, back then, I think the average royalty back then was seven or eight percent. So I was making a pretty good royalty. My books were, if I recall right, there were twelve ninety nine and fourteen ninety nine for the two nonfiction books. So every time I I made a sale, basically I would pocket either a dollar twenty nine or a dollar forty nine. And I got to thinking, you know. My gas and my hotel and my meals and all that stuff comes out of that. And I didn't even get close to breaking even. I'm certain of it. Um, Yes, my sales spiked, you know, and it feels good to sell, you know, 20 or 30 or 150 books. But uh, as far as money, no, it, it, you know, it was just a, a losing proposition. And then several years later, of course, all this, this uh, uh, you know, independent publishing came up when Smashwords, I think, was the first one to start uh, kind of a big deal. Actually, I had a, uh, I in a kind of, well, it was another small publisher, I guess. I had the first ever uh, full length poetry collection. It was called Lessons for a Barren Population, published by Hardshell Word Factory. And it was taken, they took it to the Frankfurt Book Fair. And uh, it won third prize, I think, um, as a poetry collection, which was odd because they put it in the fiction category. There wasn't a poetry category at the time. But that was the first ever book-length poetry collection uh, published as an electronic book. And back then when you got it, you would get it on a three and a half inch floppy drive.
0: <laughs> huh.
1: So things have changed a lot. When, yeah, when in, when uh, Indie Publishing stood up, you know, when Smashwords started, I think I came on board with them in 2011. So I was a year or two behind the curve, but uh, I haven't looked back since.
0: So what would you say, you know, 2019, you know, you've been publishing for a long time, a lot of books out out there, obviously traditionally published, doing a lot of different things, teaching, you know, writing, uh, you know, what, would you, what advice would you give kind of beginning, um, you know, people just starting out or maybe they're traditional and they're thinking about indie publishing, what would be some things just to, to consider as they're kind of getting their work out, you know, whether that's on the craft side, the marketing side, the business side, what, what are some just kind of principles you want to share?
1: I have a few things, not not really a whole lot, but I do have a few things. I can't boil it down to one hint because it just doesn't work that way. Um, the first one is trust yourself. You know, uh, forego all the nonsense you've heard about that you can't write a story well the first time. Uh, just pure silly. Um, trust yourself and your creative voice and don't let anyone else into your work. Uh, I I don't like critique groups, peer critique groups. I don't see any uh, benefit whatsoever to trying to learn something from someone who's on your same level or maybe even behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you want to learn something, you need to look at the masters. You need to look at people who are farther down the road than you are. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is to write. Like I said earlier, your job is to write, not to judge. Judging is the reader's job. Uh, writers really are the worst judges of their own work, whether they think it's bad or even if they think it's good. So, and 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 your opinion just doesn't matter. All that matters is the reader's opinion, because the reader's the one who spent some of their hard-earned money on your book. Uh, another piece I would, set, I would say is set a daily goal. And if you want to set a weekly goal or a monthly goal, that's fine. But divide it by the number of riding days in that week or in that month and make it a daily goal because a daily goal resets every morning. No matter what you did on your last riding day, whether you shot right past it and did really well or you missed it by a few hundred words, or you did you know, something came up and you didn't write at all. None of that matters the next morning because the goal resets to zero, so it's a whole new, a whole new deal. Um, and then maybe most importantly is just have fun. Hmm. Uh, you know, don't take yourself so seriously. Uh, you know, writing is not a calling. It's not. It really isn't. Uh, angelic voices do not go off, you know, when you put on your white robe and mm-hmm. climb into the authorial ivory tower. Uh, it, that just isn't the way it works. Mechanics work on car engines because it's what they love to do. Mm-hmm. You know, carpenters build things for the same reason. And And that's why writers should write. Mm-hmm. Writers should write, especially fiction writers, for goodness sake, writers should write because they love it because they're passionate about it and it's fun, you know, and, and if you, you know, if you're not having fun, if you're, if, if you're writing, because you know, that way you can go to a launch party and drape your forearm over your forehead and, and get all wistful about one thing or another, then you're, you're just, you know, find something fun to do. Um, stop writing and go find something fun to do that's it, that, that would be my advice to beginning writers
0: yeah that i mean that harvey you're you're hitting the how do they say the the nail in the head uh not enough i think writers talk about having fun and, and not taking it so seriously it's it it is it and i think you can have a you know long-term perspective when you when you have fun with it because it, it's not digging ditches it's not you know like you said it's not this you know big huge calling and and angelic being it's like got to do the work right have fun and, and write the stories you want to write and You know, and
1: I was was, I'm sorry, I was talking with a a mentoring student that's that I'm so fortunate uh, to have her. She's also a a good friend. And I was talking with her just a couple of days ago. And she said, you know, I just can't shut up that critical voice. And she said, "I, I, I have to go back over what I've written at least a little bit just to make sure it's good. And I said right there. See, you're making it more important than it is. I said, think about it, you know, it's you spend all this time writing a novel, about a thousand words an hour, so a 60,000 word novel is going to take you about 60 hours to write, and you write that novel, and you put it out there, and now, you know, a reader buys it, but you know what it is to the reader? Even if they absolutely love it, it's nothing more than a few hours entertainment. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And and if you write a, a really great short story, to the reader out there, it's nothing more than a few minutes entertainment. That's all it is. So, you know, and she said, well, but I feel responsible. I said, why do you feel responsible? It's the character's story, not yours. You know, do you feel responsible when your neighbor's telling you a story? Well, no. I said, well... Don't be responsible for your characters. Let them do what they do. Let them live their life and their story. And you just record it. Just write it down. That's That's all you're doing. And then let it go.
0: Good. I love that. I love that. So
1: so she kind of got it after that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's great. It's a great perspective. So Harvey, this has been fantastic. We have talked about a lot of things. You have uh, given us some great advice and wisdom from all your experience. Uh, Tell us what you're working on right now and where people can find you and your work.
1: Ah, actually the best place to see my stuff is on my publisher website and that's at stonethreadpublishing.com. We give discounts for sales that are direct to the readers. Uh, We can skip the middleman with direct sales so the readers get a better price and we get a better return. It's just that, you know, that, uh, that simple. Uh, some of my books are available in paper but all of them are available in ebooks and those are at smashwords and draft to digital and amazon barnes and noble you know all the major venues mm-hmm. uh, so i don't know uh 4 or 500 places around the world and uh because i go wide i don't do exclusivity mm-hmm. and uh, and i think in like 1200 libraries at last uh, count, All right. So, but yeah, the, the best place is StoneThreadPublishing.com, and then there's also a lot of information at HarveyStanbro.com. Uh, there's also a ton of information there for writers, and then I also have my almost daily journal, in which I I kind of give people kind of tidbits about writing and also kind of the life of a writer in my journal, and that's at hestanbro.com.
0: Okay, great. Well, Harvey, it's been a a long time coming. I'm so glad I could finally talk to you, and uh, I really appreciate what you do and who you are and how you help so many writers, and I just love your perspective on writing, how you think about it, Um, and you really helped a lot of writers today. So thank you for coming on the show, and all the best.
1: Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, and I'm glad we were able to put it together. <laughs> and my thanks for helping me stumble through all the all the stuff to get it set up.
0: My pleasure. Many of us grew up without learning how to manage our finances to pursue our dreams and plans for our future. We grew up with the wrong ideas about money, thinking it's all about numbers when it has to do a lot with our emotions. How are we supposed to feel comfortable talking about money? Is there a safe space for that? There is. Head over to our feed and listen to the featured episode we recorded with Self. Don't forget to follow Self Podcast.